Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 77 called Chloe. Okay, before we get started, I just wanted to remind everybody in case you are going through this journey and you are looking for support, head on over to Fertility Rally. This is the business I started with Blair from Fab Fertility, and it is so awesome, guys. It is a community, it's got content, we have curated events. We have a Wednesday night support group that has become my favorite thing of the week. Special guests always and special themes. We have over 200 members now and we would love for you to join us. So head on over to fertilityrally.com. Check out membership options. There's a bunch of different ones. And let me know if you have any questions. We would love to rally with you. Okay, so let's talk about Chloe, who is our guest today. You guys might know Chloe Malas because she is a CNN entertainment reporter. So you might have seen her on TV or online. And today we are going to get super, super real. This is some real talk, you guys, about her infertility journey, starting with how she got set up with her husband on a blind date and going into all the things, including sex that wasn't great, which I know a lot of us can relate to, huge fights, feeling like a factory in the waiting room at the doctor's office, the misery of the two-week wait, a pregnancy she had that was in an unknown location, and so much more. So I just wanted to thank Chloe for reaching out to me and for telling her story today, and I think you guys are really going to be inspired by it. So without further ado, this is Chloe's infertility story. Chloe, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for good. having me. Thank you so much. So I'm so happy you reached out to me to share your story. I think you had said you had heard the Michelle Buteau interview, right? Did you guys used to work together? Yeah. So I love Michelle. She's so cool. So I used to be a co-host on a morning TV show on VH1 many moons ago called The Gossip Table. And Michelle used to be a co-host on Big Morning Buzz with uh, Nick Lachey. So she was on that show that was right before ours. So I got to see her. I didn't get to know her too well because there was just so much craziness and we were on back-to-back shows, but I've seen her do stand up, and I just admire her journey and how she has shared it. So I was like, oh my God, I, first of all, I had heard of your podcast and listened to some of it before Michelle's. And I was oh, just wow. like, Thank I was you. like, I out. So Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you did. And let's start at the beginning. Tell me about growing up. Were you always maternal and did you always want to have kids? Yes. With an exclamation point. Um, (laughs) I started babysitting when I was probably nine. I cannot believe that any parents trusted me with their children. Looking back, these poor moms must have been just desperate for (laughs) someone. 
I was a mother's helper. And then I remember dropping flyers off and knocking on people's doors. And I started full-blown babysitting by the time I was in the fifth grade. And when we moved to Texas, right before I started the sixth grade, I babysat all through middle school. And I remember the dads would drive me home and I would come over right around dinner. But I mean, I would put children to bed and Mm -hmm. I'm in the sixth or seventh grade. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I always did that. And then it got a little bit more intense as I went through high school. I got really close to several different families. And then there was this one family where I would go home a lot of weekends and spend a lot of my summers babysitting for this one family. And they had a son with special needs and I got to know them very well. And it's being around children and taking care of children has always been something that was always just inherently a part of me. It wasn't like anybody pushed me towards that. Yeah. It's funny because I have a daughter who's about to enter the sixth grade and I just can't even imagine. I mean, she's sat with our son who's four and a half. So she'll, she'll like be with him during the day while we're upstairs or something and kind of babysit, but I can't imagine going out and leaving her alone with I don't little know, kids. Long, it's a different time. <laughs> really that different or now we're all just so hyper- aware and hyper freaked out and scared yeah. of every little thing. Yeah, um, totally. With the internet with all these horror stories. You know, and I also grew up in the South. So I was born in Atlanta, uh, raised in Atlanta for most of my life, then also raised in Texas for the second half. And I feel like everybody wants kids. <laughs> who yeah. live in the, I mean, I, I don't ever remember having a conversation with any friends until I moved up to the Northeast that maybe kids wouldn't be part of the plan. Uh-huh. And I don't know that's just because that's kind of like put upon you that, you know, women will grow up and be moms and raise children. Um, right. and have white picket fence. I never really heard about people kind of like putting their careers first mm-hmm. or their own hopes and dreams first which I admire women who do. I just, that was always just kind of like, like an understood unspoken thing. Like of right. course you're going to be a mom because right. everybody's a mom. Right. So you obviously have an amazing career. You're a reporter for CNN and you've done lots of other things as well, including the VH1 thing that you were just talking about. So did you ever worry that having kids was gonna, you know, get in the way of your career? I really just thought that it was just all, I was going to have the career, have the kids, have the house, have the husband, uh, super naive and thinking all of that, you know, sure. I guess in a way I have it quote all now, but it came with like an intense price tag and a lot of heartache and so much drama, but no, I mean, I always was career oriented, really passionate, really competitive, always wanted, but I'm terrible at sports, but competitive in the sense of just going after what I want and whether that be a man, children, a job, it kind of like is across the board for all things in my life. Sure. Um, But no, I just kind of thought like it would all just fall into place. Okay. So tell me about meeting your husband, Brian. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, he's so great. We have been together. It'll be eight years this October. We were set up on a blind date. I had gotten out of a terrible relationship and he's actually married now to Meghan Markle's best friend. Oh, he's wow. a, yeah. He's a guy that just always, always just seems to run in the, the right circles, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but he ripped my heart out, broke it into a million pieces. He was cheating on me the whole time while I was with him. um, And it was just really, really terrible. And when I got out of that relationship, I had just was hardened. I was sad. I was broken. I was raw. And I just never thought I would ever date again. And it was Mm -hmm. really shortly thereafter that a matchmaker who had a TV show on Bravo, but not Patty Stanger. Oh my God. I was going to say Patty Stanger. (laughs) I know. No, it was called um, Love Broker. Okay. It it starred Lori Zaslow and Jen Zucker, and they have something called Project Soulmate. Okay. um, Still in existence today. And they have a really high success rate for anybody that's that's listening. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so I met her at a Starbucks randomly because I was looking at her with her children in line. She looked like the perfect mom with the perfect kids on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I thought to myself, I would love to have a, a life like that one day. And I said something to her about how cute her little boys were. And she and I got to talking, we exchanged information and we just developed this friendship about her show and her show was premiering. And I started interviewing her and throughout this whole process, just the backstory is that she was watching me go through this terrible relationship Mm -hmm. and she was like, I want to introduce you to somebody. I want to introduce you to somebody. And I was like, I don't want to use a matchmaker. That sounds crazy and like weird. Like I want the universe to let me meet somebody at a bar because right. that's what you're supposed to do. This is before all the dating sites. Like I met Brian right before mm-hmm. like dating site explosion happened with online matchmaking. And Finally, I agreed very shortly after this relationship to go on a date and she introduced me to Brian Mm -hmm. and we exchanged information, he and I, and we were just texting and very quickly it turned into very a business thing because he was in the restaurant business. I had started this little like kind of PR meetup group. And I wanted like to get, get people together for these monthly dinners. And I immediately was like, saw it as a professional opportunity, like, I don't need a guy, but I need a restaurant to host a dinner. And so <laughs> we started texting and then I ended up planning this dinner without even meeting him. And he, I invited him to stop by. So he stops by, introduces himself. Then he comes back like an hour later at the dinner. Uh, Cause he just checked in, sat down next to me and we made plans to get coffee. And then we went on our first date like a week later. And then we moved in together after four months we're engaged after eight months. And then it was two years though, uh, that we'd been together by the time we got married. Mm-hmm. So the longest word is we were set up on a blind date through. I love, <laughs> I love it. So when did having kids come into the conversation? Did you guys start talking about that right away? I don't remember any specific conversations about having children with him other than I think it was just like understood that we mm-hmm. both had siblings and we both wanted kids. And that was just part of the cards. But when I got married, I was 28 and he had just turned 30 and we were in no rush. It was probably though the next year, that next summer when we went on our honeymoon, because we delayed it, we were in Spain. And I remember starting to bring it up and I started to track my ovulation and it wasn't, it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. You know, he was very much like, there's no rush. Like, It'll happen if it happens. Mm-hmm. Why are you stressing? Typical Chloe, like already tracking her ovulation, just chill out. 
And I was like, no, like that's what you do. You have to track your ovulation. And I was buying those ovulation sticks where you pee on them. And it was, mm-hmm. I could never get it right. I, I actually was like convinced that I wasn't ovulating. I bought this really like expensive ovulation kit that was digital. And yes. <laughs> you and sprung for the digital one. I know. And that that's wasn't working serious. either. So I ended up going to my OBGYN being like, something's wrong with me. I've been trying to get pregnant for a few months. And she's like, it's okay. Come back in six months, you know, after six months or so of trying, and maybe we'll do some, some testing. And we just kind of kept trying, but it was never like, I don't think he was really ever fully on board in the beginning too. It was mm-hmm. kind of like a fight right from the beginning in a way. So, okay. So when things got serious, then did you end up seeing an RE and doing like going through a protocol or like what were the next steps? I went to my OBGYN again, and I basically wouldn't take no for an answer. And she ran some blood work on me and everything looked quote fine. And that was when she said, well, maybe your husband should get his sperm tested to Mm. which I was like, oh my God, I Mm -hmm. don't ask him to go do that. He's not going to go do it. And I'm sure it's not him. So I got the name of a urologist for him. I think I can't really remember actually. It's all a blur. How funny you remember things so vividly when it's happening. And then oh my gosh, a year yeah. pass and it, it really all does become somewhat a bit of a mem- memory for those out there listening that are really stressed out right now. I promise there is like another side to all of this, but yeah, I think you block it out too. After you're kind of out the other side, like all the little details, you just, it's like a self-protective thing almost like you can't go back there. Definitely. And so he got to sperm tested and I just remember it just was bad. It, she told me that it was just really bad numbers all around. We were out to dinner. We were eating at the meatball shop and we were out to dinner with this other couple. And, um, he was actually my agent at the time. And it was so awkward because we didn't really know him and his wife very well. So we couldn't really be too emotional. And I'm outside taking the like doctor's, you know, terrible sperm notes oh, outside of the meatball shop of all names and places. And <laughs> they always call it the best times, right? The evening. And we go back inside and, you know, I have my husband come outside and this couple's wondering like, what is happening? Like, so we kind of told them, but of course, like when a couple, they weren't even married yet. I mean, when you're talking to someone about infertility who has no idea what what you're talking about, it's all like German, you know, it's like, oh, sorry. It's like super awkward. And like, how do you come back from that? (laughs) So I had a nervous breakdown almost, uh, like the, the next day. And I was just really upset. So I called a fertility practice in the city called new hope. Mm-hmm. I, I knew nothing about them, but I had read that Dr. Zhang and somebody told me that he was like this awesome doctor who could like make me get pregnant, go see him. So we went and saw him and we almost got an appointment the same day because I cried on the phone to the receptionist. That was hysterical. And she got us in. We met with Dr. Zhang and he was like, you're fine. You guys are going to be fine. You're going to get pregnant. No problem. Let's just uh, monitor you. And so I started going in like a couple times a month, like at the beginning of the month and like the third day of like my period. And then I would like go in again and they were tracking my ovulation and I wasn't ready yet to do IUI. And I was going home and having sex 
with, with my husband mm-hmm. in, with my legs in the air, mm-hmm. holding my legs in the air. Okay. Forever. So uncomfortable, so much stress to have sex on these certain days. Oh my um, God. I know. Schedules, crazy fights. Yep. Like terrible fights. Yep. I mean, there's all so much pressure on a guy to like get it up. I mean, you know, and, and I'm not being sexy. I don't care. I'm so beyond like frantic and manic at this point. It's been only maybe, you know, eight months, but it's been like eight months of obsessing and huge fights, you know, like to the point where it was just like, uh, he just was so turned off, you know, and I would just be like, go watch porn. Okay. And I'll just come in when you're ready. And it was like sad to me that that's what it had come to. But at this point, it was just like, this is a means to an ends. The faster you get me pregnant, the faster we can just move on. You know, like I didn't realize that that wouldn't work out. Mm-hmm. I remember that too, Chloe, like the sex on demand and just like the pressure and like not being able to perform and like sweating and crying and fighting. And it was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. I can't even believe this happens. Also, just like, then like the conversations, like, do you not find me attractive? And like, why, why is this so difficult? Or, you know, like we'd be having sex and then all of a sudden, like he'd have to stop. And it was Mm -hmm. just like, it was just, so awful. And then there would be times where we would just stop and I'd be screaming or crying and slamming doors and like hate each other. And then I would like curse the day he was born. If you know, it didn't, you know, we didn't have sex on the days that we needed to. I was like, you've ruined it. You know, like this is another effing month that I have to wait, you know? Totally. Cause there's Um, such a small window, which so many people don't realize. And I didn't realize until we were in the midst of it. Like a day or something. I remember being like, just stick it in now. Like it's like a devil. Like it's like, oh my God. So crazy, so stressful. And so then I went back to Dr. Zhang. I was like, we're ready to do IUI. And I was like, okay, well, I'm totally going to get pregnant now because they're going to put the sperm inside me and it's going to be great. And like, whatever. Okay let's just do it. So we did IUI. It didn't work. Mm. Like, Oh my God. So then they put me on like letrozole and estrogen mm-hmm. and they had me on these two different drugs. And I felt like a factory in the waiting room. I felt, I just didn't feel like anybody was really paying close attention to us. Mm-hmm. And we did a second IUI. It didn't work. So then I go in for my third IUI and at this point, I knew a lot about sperm. I knew about motility, morphology, sperm count. I knew what his sperm needed to be post-wash in order for like us to have decent chances. And I don't know what compelled me to ask, but right before I did my IUI for the third time, I asked what was his sperm post-wash? And they told me it was less than a million. And I almost lost my... S-H-I-T. Okay. Like I'm literally like, what, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Like, this is terrible. And they're like, well, you know, like it only takes one. Like, I'm like, but were you going to tell me this? Like, why are we doing IUI? And I literally I'm in a gown. I'm about to get an IUI. They're like, well, do you not want to do it? I'm like, well, obviously just do it, you know, because I, and I'm so upset. Maybe that was my second I think that was my, my second IUI actually, but that happened. 
But then my third IUI, so that I think that happened my second IUI. And then my third IUI, I'm on the drugs. I'm a, yes. Okay. Sorry. That was my second IUI, but then I'm, I'm going into my third IUI. I'm pumped up full of drugs. I had this bad experience with the second one with the post-wash being less than a million. And I remember just being on Google and Googling Savannah Guthrie because mm-hmm. I knew she had done IVF and mm-hmm. I read that she did it at Cornell. So I called up and they had a cancellation and they got me in for that week. So I went and I sat with Dr. Reichman with my husband and we're telling him everything that's going on. And he's listening intently. He's a young guy. looks like Doogie Hauser. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why don't we like go look at your ovaries? I'm like, right now. Okay. I'm like, well, I'm actually supposed to do an IUI this weekend. He's like, let's just look. So he goes and he looks and he's like, you, you have so many follicles right now and you are so overstimulated. He's like, I wouldn't do an IUI this weekend. You could have triplets. Oh wow! I'm, I'm like, there's no way, but I would take triplets. So that doesn't make me not want to do it. And he's like, yeah. Oh, really? Like, what are you on? I'm like telling him the different medicines that they have me on. He's like, I don't get it. He's like, and you're young. Like, I I don't see why. So he confused me. And so I was nervous and I was like, well, I don't really know if I want three kids at once, but I was like, I don't think we should do it. So I backed out of my third IUI and I decided just to go with his practice, just trusted my gut. And in that time, he was like, you know, let's test your husband's sperm again. You know, I feel like you guys, that we could just do an IUI here. I don't think we need to rush to IVF. So I'm like feeling good. He calls me less than a week later. He's like, yeah, sorry. Your husband's sperm is pretty bad. He's like, so you need to do IVF. IUI is not going to work. And I was like, what? You're Mm -hmm. kidding me. What are you talking about? IVF? That's a death sentence. Like, Oh, I don't want to do IVF. Mm-hmm. Like that's the last option. He's like, no, you need to do IVF. And so I was devastated. I had just started my new job at CNN. I'd only been there a few months. I'd started in May. This is now September. And I'm sitting in this like tiny conference room at work being like, oh my God, like, what is he talking about? IVF? Like, this is crazy. So I'm calling my husband and he's like, well, what do we need to do? I'm like, I don't even know. I don't, I think it's really expensive. I don't even know what our insurance covers. It was like being thrust into the middle of a tornado. And I, and I thought things were bad at that point. And I just, this was like now sending me over the edge. I mean, I was really upset. I really just never expected that I would have to do IVF. I mean, things were now officially not going as planned And this was getting too real. And now I felt like my window and everything was kind of like, like in the movies where the walls are like closing in on you. Now I'm feeling like, oh my God, maybe I'm not going to be a mom. Maybe I'm not going to have kids. Am I going to need to adopt? Am I going to not, you know, like, what can I afford? What can I not afford? And, you know, I'm, it was just so stressful. And not to mention, I hated everybody that was pregnant around me. Every human I saw on the subway or at Starbucks who had a pregnant belly and any of my friends that announced they were pregnant, I literally felt like the whole world was pregnant except for me. It was made me sick. Mm -hmm. Mentally, I was just kind of like walking around in like a pregnant fog. All I wanted was a baby. I mean, I've never been so obsessed with something in my life. Mm -hmm. And at this point now, we're over a year into trying. So 
Dr. Reichman's like, look, you know, you need to do IVF. I call insurance. I find out that we have good fertility benefits, which, okay, great. Check, check that box. He's like, look, you know, I have to submit all of this stuff to your insurance. I'm going to write them a letter, blah, 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 blah. Before you knew it, he had all the paperwork and he rushed it in. And he was like, look, if you want to have more than one child, you need to, to, to start right now. And so I like was like, all right, let's do it. So that next month we did IVF. I mean, there was no downtime. So I had gone from a couple IUIs monitoring my ovulation and now I'm jumping into IVF. So we did Brian's sperm count again, still not good. We start the hormones for me. And really you would think that I would be a little bit excited, but really I was just the depths of despair and Mm -hmm. really unhappy. Midway through, Brian and I were fighting so bad Mm -hmm. and I was so mentally unwell. That's the only way I can describe it, I can totally understand why people say medication can make them do crazy things. I was not feeling well that I had to go see a psychiatrist that deals with infertility. Okay. Yeah. And she was at Cornell and she's available for patients. And she sat with me and my husband and she said, going through IVF and going through fertility treatments is emotionally the same as going through cancer treatment. And I guess there have been studies about this. Someone told me, even the other day, someone told me about this. And it was kind of the first time that I felt really validated where I was like, okay, so I'm not crazy. And this is kind of normal. And it's not my fault that I feel this way. And I think it was important for my husband to hear too, because I think that even though he was really supportive and he came to every single doctor's appointment and he always has a positive attitude, I still think that in his mind, it was a little bit like, why is she like not handling this a little bit stronger? You know, I think there was just like a part of him kind of being like, I don't understand the breakdown. Completely. For him to be there, for him to hear that, to understand that like, no, I'm being pumped full of unnatural hormones. And like both my ovaries are working like trains right now. Okay. Like this is intense. Mm -hmm. This is not normal. And I am not myself right now. Not to mention I have been pumped full of drugs that maybe weren't necessary for months before this. So there's no downtime. I don't know if necessarily jumping into IVF was the right thing to do at that moment. Maybe I should have given myself a couple months, but hindsight is 2020. And so, you know, we finished, we went, we went through with the, with the two weeks, you know, we we didn't, we didn't stop, but the Dr. Reichman said, you know, you don't have a lot of follicles. He's like, you know, you have low ovarian egg reserve. And I'm like, what's low ovarian egg reserve. So it turns out that in all this testing I had done with my OBGYN, all this testing I had done at New Hope, nobody ever told me about my quote egg reserve. That was not a number that was ever thrown at me. And that was stressful to hear, Mm -hmm. you know, on top of everything, I have a short window to have children and I could even go into early menopause. And turns out my mom went into early menopause and my grandma went into early menopause. So it's genetic according to the doctors that I've spoken to. So they just happened to get pregnant and maybe they had great sperm. (laughs) So they never knew that they had low ovarian egg reserve, right? At the end, 
you know, we did the egg retrieval and they got 10 or 11 eggs. And I was really happy about that, but only six were mature. And, you know, I told a good friend of mine who just started IVF last week, I said, it's a numbers game. And every day it's like, you're holding your breath and I just feel like every day brought more bad news. And so six were mature, four fertilized, and then two were quote good and two were quote abnormal. And I could never get a straight answer as to like what abnormal meant. And that's always frustrated me to this day. Like what does abnormal mean? And they can't really like explain it to me. They're just like, it's just not dividing correctly or multiplying correctly. So it was day three it was Halloween Mm -hmm. and we got a call that morning that one looked great and the other one, not so good. And then there were the two abnormal ones that they wanted to watch those till day five, but they wanted to do a fresh transfer that day. And since our genetic testing hadn't shown anything that was abnormal, we agreed, okay, let's just take our chances and let's do a fresh transfer. So I went right back in laid on that same operating table where I had been for my egg retrieval just a few days before. It was like something out of the twilight zone. And they put this little embryo in me and they handed me a picture and I left and I couldn't have felt more depressed. I was so upset. The whole thing just felt really sterile. I was like, I can't believe this is my life and I can't believe this is happening. I was convinced it wasn't going to work. At this point, I'm like Miss Doomsday. I'm like glass half empty is who I am point in life. And that two week wait was misery. Mm -hmm. And I was eating pineapple, laying on my left side, like Mm -hmm. all the things walking around, like I'm holding like a glass, you know, like don't touch me. Don't come too close to me. And two weeks later they called me and my nurse said I was pregnant. At that point I was still completely in denial And then it was a really actually stressful next few days. So pretty dramatic. We had to go in to quote, see the sack on a sonogram. And my doctor, Reichman, couldn't find the sack. And Brian, it was the one appointment he didn't go with me to. So I called him and I'm like, they can't find the sack. He's like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, they're sending me to the upper east side to go to the hospital because I'm down in Tribeca at this satellite office for the doctor. Go uptown right now. I have to call my boss and tell her I can't come to work this morning and I have to meet a special sonogram guy to look inside my uterus and tell me where's the sack. And so we go and we meet with this doctor and he's really matter of fact and he's like, yeah, there's no sack. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean there's no sack? He's Mm -hmm. like, it's probably ectopic. I'm like, what, what do you mean? I don't understand. He's like, yeah, you'll have to come back in a few days, but like, you're definitely not pregnant. And I'm like, but I don't understand. Like my numbers were, have been doubling. He's like, yeah, I don't know. It can be just a pregnancy of unknown location. Mm -hmm. My husband is hysterical. Okay. Hysterical. I'm keeping my my SHIT together. Okay. But I'm asking questions because I'm a reporter and all I do is I've asked questions since the day I was born. So I'm asking him like a hundred questions. He's really rude. I mean, he was rude. Okay. So I've always said, you know, doctors and people that are dealing with fertility patients or just people in general during these sensitive times, they should have a 
like rule book of the things that you can and you shouldn't say and how you should talk to somebody. I'm sorry, but like you should, I don't care if it's like you're seeing 5,000 patients, like don't be a jerk. Yeah. And I was really upset. We walked out and it was horrible. My best friend from college was in town that weekend to stay with me. Terrible timing. She had just had a miscarriage. And so here I am a basket case and I tell her what I'm going through. And I was like, that was the last thing that she wanted to hear was that a, I was pregnant, even though I know she was happy for me, but B that like, it might not be working out for me. Mm -hmm. So I went to the emergency room that next day because I was convinced that I would had an ectopic pregnancy and that my fallopian tubes were going to burst and that I was going to die. I mean, here I am like diving into this deep hole on Google. Yes. That's what you do. Yeah. Emergency room. And they're like, sorry, we don't have the machine for like four hours. I'm like, well, I'm not waiting here for four hours. Like, so I actually like was admitted and then I left and I think I still have bills from like NYU. Oh my God. <laughs> Walking out. I'm like, you didn't even like do one thing to me except put a bracelet on me. I'm not paying for anything. Sure. Um, and so I, I go back to Dr. Reichman on Sunday. It's been about 48 hours or oh so. Oh my God. What a brutal 48 hours too. Cause you're like, what's happening inside my body? And also like, you're probably like stress is probably like the worst thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, at this point I was so done and just, it was like, I was just so broken and I was just like, of course I'm going to have an ectopic pregnancy and now they're going to have to remove my fallopian tubes. I mean, Mm -hmm. like I was so upset. We go see Dr. Reichman and he finds the sack. Mm -hmm. The sack was there. It was just growing slow. Okay. So we're like, oh, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm pregnant. He's like, yep, yep, yep. There's a sack. I'm like, okay. So it's not ectopic. He's like, nope. So we're like, oh my God. Okay. And then, you know, a few weeks later we heard the heartbeat and then we transitioned to our OBGYN, but to bring this story full circle, when we were at the hospital for my anatomy scan, we were walking around the corner and my husband said, hold on a second. And there was a door open and it was somebody's office and he walked in and I kind of walked in behind him and there was a doctor sitting at a desk. And I just remember the room was like kind of dark and he goes, Hey, do you remember me? And the doctor like just looked at him and he was like, you told us that we weren't pregnant. And I'm like, Oh my God, Brian, like, why are you doing this? Yes, Brian, get in there. (laughs) guy who did the sonogram who said there was no way I was pregnant. And Brian was like, let me jog your memory. It's like, you told us that we weren't pregnant. Well, my wife is here for her anatomy scan and we are pregnant. (gasps) And I was like, oh my God, like this is unnecessary, but like, I guess just let him do his thing. Mm-hmm. And he always says he has a photographic memory. I'm like, maybe you, maybe you're right. Cause I didn't recognize the doctor. Yeah. Um, and then when we were back several, several weeks later for our hospital tour, which is like a rite of passage, I feel like for first time moms, we ran into him at the elevator bank and oh it was a huge hospital in Manhattan. I mean, the odds. So we run into him and he was like Maza, right? Cause that's my married name. He like yep. pointed us and we're like, yeah. He's like, congratulations. And I'm like, thank you. So oh my God. I, I hope that he like learned, I, I, I hope that like he like learned a lesson in a roundabout way um, right. you know, that like science can only take you so far, you know? And I also think that, you know, I feel like I skipped over this point, but like 
that one embryo that they put in me on day three, there are no others. There's nothing to freeze. Those Mm -hmm. three others didn't make it. Mm -hmm. Like that's Leo. That's my little three-year-old boy who I'm going with to Rhode Island tomorrow. That's my, like, I call him my rainbow baby. I mean, there he is. And I really thought that I would never, ever have, have children. And so when I wanted my second child, we went straight into IVF. I did one IUI just for the hell of it. And I was like, okay, yeah, it didn't work. Well, just, just for fun, for old time's sake. (laughs) And just jumped right into IVF. And just to tell you the numbers for anybody out there, because I feel like when I was going through it, all I did was read numbers and I would read message boards of like people from Great Britain, like in the UK, like from 2002. I don't know why I would be like up at like two in the morning reading like, Oh, okay. So she had six. I mean, I I was like crazy. Totally. Um, You know what? That's so common. And I did the same thing falling into the, onto those message boards and in this like Google rabbit hole. Like amazing though. <laughs> it was always at like four in the morning when I couldn't sleep. And I, for little Lukey, I was in the middle of doing IVF and Reichman was like, look, I think we should just pull the cycle. I mean, your left ovaries really not even ovulating at all. I don't see any follicles. And like, I don't really, I, I, I just don't, I, I just don't think maybe we should go through with this. And I was like, no, we're going through with this. Like I've already done these, the meds thus far, like, let's just finish it. So like, we both agreed that we would just do it and just deal with whatever we got. And I got six eggs, only four were mature to remember I have low, low ovarian egg reserve. So look Mm -hmm. at that in just like two years, how much that changed. So six eggs, four were mature, only two fertilized. One was supposedly amazing quality, which I was like, is it, was it better than Leo's embryo? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I thought Leo's was perfect. He's like, no, this one's even better. Wow. So he's like, let's just transfer day three. So I'm like, okay, like to hell with it. Let's just transfer day three. Well, the other one obviously was abnormal. That one they transferred was Luke. Oh my gosh. Wow. So like, I know it's really frustrating to hear the stupid, like, well, not stupid, but you think it's stupid. Cause I mean, I'm like, stop telling me this. Like it only takes one. I'm like, shut the F up. No. Like, I don't want to hear it. it only takes one because like, I'm going to like jump off of a bridge at any second, but mm-hmm. it really does only take one. So like, I know that sucks to hear because you can't see it now and you can't hear it now and you don't want to hear it now. But like, and you think that you need like 30 eggs and you need like eight on ice. Mm-hmm. Like you really don't. And in a way, I'm kind of happy that I don't have a bunch of embryos frozen. Like, sure, would I love to like kind of toy with a third child, even though I'm in the middle of hell with a three-year-old and a one-year-old and I haven't slept in a full year, but this is what I wanted. And like, I fought for no sleep. I basically fought to have a totally chaotic life, which is like kind of funny because I like sometimes miss my days where I could like do whatever the hell I wanted to do by myself with like no one watching me pee or screaming or vomiting on me or like having a... (laughs) fever every two days, but really like, it's kind of nice to just not have that pressure of having, you know, embryos. And I, I have friends that, that struggle with knowing that they have a certain amount of embryos frozen because they feel like that is a life, you know, right. some people believe that that is life. And so they, they want to keep paying to keep them frozen, you know, so that, yeah. that has a challenges, you know, but I look at the silver lining, the silver lining of it all. Thank you again for listening guys. And thanks again to Chloe for 
just complete transparency, which is always so appreciated when we're talking about all this stuff. So if you guys want to see more of Chloe, check her out on Instagram at Chloe Malas. It's M-E-L-A-S. Or you can see her over on CNN. I also wanted to tell you guys to save the date. October 24th is Fertility Rally Live. We have been working so hard to line up the most amazing programming. It's going to be a full day celebrating this infertility community. We've got keynote speakers, crazy panels, awesome breakout sessions, and lots of fun surprises. So tickets are going to go on sale soon, or they might already be on sale depending when you're listening to this. But the event is October 24th, and it's going to be groundbreaking and disruptive and just super, super cool. We can't wait. So save the date and we'll be announcing more of that soon. So if you're not already following us on Instagram, follow us at the Fertility Rally. And then of course you can follow me at Infertile AF Stories as well. Thanks. Talk to you next time.